morning. How's the stuff? Good? All right. It's been a minute since I've been up here. It's weird. Not, you're not weird. I just, being here is weird. But it's good. I like it. Good to see your faces. So, as I get started, um, I needed to start with a little bit of assistance. And so I was going to look for a volunteer. I'm not sure who I should pick based on the title of my sermon. Um, I'm going to go with maybe Eliah if he's willing. Maybe I should have told him ahead of time I was naming a sermon after him. Hold on. It's important. Uh, let me uh, just here for a moment. So I need to, I have a decision that I have to make here. So I'm trying to, trying to work this out. Um, if you could just, that's fine right there where you're at there. I just okay. need to. Good. It's not bad. It's absolutely adorable. You could work that. I have something very similar. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of partial to this. Um, oh, yeah, very cute. Quite frankly, the black makes your eyes pop. Well, like. let's go with that then. So I think, I think this is what we're going okay. with. Um, if right. you could just go ahead and put that on, I'd really appreciate it. Fantastic. Um, put, put this, put not this on, on yet. N- n- negative. No, what's the problem? Uh, well, you see, um, according to the tag, these are for um, size 12 months. Um, I have not worn size 12 months in maybe ever. Uh, um, 18 months is a little closer, uh, but it's... it's um, yes, I guess I don't... It's okay, so, sorry. I, I'm not quite sure I'm following. I mean, those are clothes. You, you wear clothes. Sure. In theory. Sure. Um, at least publicly. Right. And... So yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. It sounds like you're telling me that they need to be the right size. Uh, y- yeah. Or I mean, I when Ellie was little, she had some pants this size, and I used to like. Right. But I have a feeling that's not what you're looking for today. So if I understand right, in order for the clothes to fit, they need to be the right size for you, the right style for you, maybe the right shape for you. Style is good, Johnny Cash, Man in Black. Yeah. I like that. All right, so, okay, that's weird, but um, let's just say for the sake of argument that you managed to squeeze those on without them breaking. Sure, let's, let's imagine that. Let's imagine for a moment. Everybody put that in your head if you leave without anything else. Um, what, what would happen to you? Uh, I, I, would, um, I would imagine I would feel extremely uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, uh, To say right. the least. Okay. Um, well, we don't want any harm to come to you, which I, I, I suspect I might that. be the case. I appreciate that. All right, I have to think about this. Um, okay. as, as always, uh, your wisdom and grace are huge selling points uh, hap- for your continued existence. Thank you very ha- much. Happy to help. Thank you. Um, and I appreciate it. Um, I'll, I'll give this a think. I'm just going to put these right here for the moment. Um, yeah, so that was really not what I was hoping for. Um, forgive me if I throw things in church. Here we go. 
So, it's an interesting thought. It turns out the things that we wear need to fit us. I wonder if there's an important value to that beyond clothing. And so, I want to give you some fair warning as we start this. I'm going to at least try to make a point. And then I'm going to beat that point to death for most of the sermon. Um, and then at the end, hopefully it'll be clear why. Um, and if it feels like I'm repeating myself and not going anywhere, just um, I promise that there is a point to this. Also, I'm an advocate by nature and profession. And so I hope that what I say, you sort of filter through that understanding. So that's my preface and or warning and or insert whatever you want to call it here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was sitting right over there with my wife and daughter, and Vanessa was preaching, um, and I was acting like a jungle gym and snack dispenser for my daughter, as is my growing custom. And I was wondering, what in the world am I going to preach on? Like, I had two weeks left. I still didn't have a clue. Um, when I had asked Jeff, you know, what's the theme that we're going with? What should I preach on? Um, his response was, uh-huh. So, um, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this, and so I was listening to her, and she got to verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, you're welcome to look it up if you want to for fact-checking purposes, but I'm going to read it to you. Um, and it says this, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the verse taken on its own. There's some before, some after. Read it for yourself. But it was the part that says, attain to the unity of the faith that stood out to me. Now, I've read this before lots of times, and I've always read it for different purposes, but for some reason, in that moment, while I was sitting there, my daughter drooling on me, I had a, a different clarity of thought there. It said unity of faith. It didn't say uniformity of the faith. And so, it almost was as if Paul was suggesting that we would be united by our belief, but not uniform in our belief. Not the same in our belief. And I'm not suggesting this is a new concept to anyone, but for some reason, it just hit me differently in that moment, as sometimes things do. Um, and so I did what any responsible, respectable theologian would do. Um, I zerbited my daughter on her ribs, gave her a snack. Then I did a little word study um, right there in my seat because I had the ability to do so. And I wanted to check what the Greek word was for unity. Um, it turns out the word there isn't uniformity or unity, um, but only because the Greek is, well, it's written in Greek. So the word there is called uh, enotes, and it turns out that enotes actually does mean oneness or unity. And just as importantly in the Bible, it always means oneness or unity, and it never, ever means uniformity. In fact, if one does a thorough reading of the Bible, at no point um, does it ever really tell us that our faith and belief will or needs to be uniform. Only ever that we should be one and united in God. Um, this particular verse says unity of the faith, or you could say it as faith's unity. And I feel like this is an important way to sort of read that if you wanted to, because it's suggesting that not only 
that we won't be uniform in our faith, but that our faith will cause us to be united even as we are not the same. And that felt important to me. It's our faith that causes the differences in our collective ignorance to be completely irrelevant as we seek a greater connection with the Spirit of God because our unitedness was never about the details of our faith and belief, but always about our seeking of the Spirit of God. And that distinction feels really important to me. And so I thought a couple things to myself as I was sitting there. One was, okay, this feels like a really clear statement. Paul and others had every opportunity to push for uniformity, and they didn't. In fact, in some places, they did the opposite, and I'm going to hit some of those a little bit later on, if that's all right. Um, the other thought was, um, I had was, like, I really need to bring more snacks. Because as I was sitting there reading this, sort of engrossed in what I was doing, I found myself, you know, handful pounding my daughter's snacks like they were popcorn, sort of, like, lost in the thought of what I was doing, while she was watching me wondering why her snacks weren't ending up in her mouth instead of mine. So, planning ahead. And so I wondered if maybe I had found my topic. Maybe this is the thing that needs to be talked about. But it was last week um, that it sort of solidified for me as Jeff was talking about how time and culture changes and therefore needs change as we change. He didn't say just like that, but that was sort of the gist of what he was saying. And that seemed to connect really well to me to the second half of verse 13. Because it says, it goes on to something like this, because it's not just the unity of the faith we aspire to, it's not saying this, I'm telling you this, but also to maturity. Not just the unity of faith, but also to maturity. Now this is a concept that has caused Christianity and Adventism no end of problems periodically throughout our history. Now there's a number of verses that talk about the concept of maturity. But for a long time, it wasn't translated as such. The word most of us grew up with was perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anyone resonate with that statement at all? Remember growing up with that? And this, to me, feels like a big translation problem because it has a couple of sources. Um, one, the Greek doesn't actually use the word perfect. Um, as far as I can find, the Greek doesn't really ever use the word perfect in the New Testament. Instead, the word there is teleos, which is from the root telos, both of which translate as maturity. This dynamic process of growth um, and goals and movement and direction, um, expansion, moving towards completion. Yeah, you, you hit some milestones, you, you arrive at some places, but then you keep going. You're not stopping there. You haven't arrived there and you're done. You're moving, you're learning, you're becoming something more. You're getting bigger. Perfect as a word is about static finality. You've arrived, you've made it. There's nowhere for you to go. You have become just like God. Does that really make any sense? I'm not aware that that's a state that we're really going to arrive at short of God snapping his fingers and making it so. 
which is why the Greek doesn't really say it that way. But it doesn't really trickle down to us. And, that, and that's sort of a problem. Because of this, people are never good enough. We can never be good enough. We're never worthy enough. We're just lowly, horrible people existing in a terrible place. That is the narrative of perfect because we can't get there. And because we can't really get there, therefore this is what we must be. And this is the story that we sometimes tell about each other. And the thing is, the Bible never really teaches that. We supplied it. And I, and I wonder how many people have been damaged by that thought, believing that they were something worse than they were, simply because they weren't perfect. Problem number two, when we use the word perfect, we do think of it in this static term. You have arrived, you are there, there's nowhere else to go, we're done. However, in defense of those who may have translated that as perfect, at the time they did, Perfect wasn't only used as the adjective that we use it today, it was also used as a verb, to perfect. And that's a bit more like the process of maturity. You're causing something to refine, to become more, to be more than it was. But we haven't really used it that way in a long time. I don't know how many of us run around talking about how we're going to perfect a thing. So in that form, while it is a bit closer, it still is a problem because we don't think of it in those terms when we read it today and for generations. That's how we've understood it. So what are the thoughts? What are the ideas? What are the realities of existence that we have come to conclusions on because of how we viewed the word perfect? It's amazing how one word can change everything for somebody. And because people are stubborn, I... I take responsibility for my own stubbornness. Um, and because the history of words doesn't usually make it to the rest of us, we're not really spending a lot of time thinking about the etymology of things. We don't always realize what it is, and we've continued to unintentionally create a culture of condemnation and spiritual belittlement by telling people that they aren't perfect enough according to whatever definition that person decided on at the time. which weirdly always seems to be a smaller state, not a bigger one. Now, I don't know about those of you who ever spent time as a child. Anyone was ever a child before in this room? One or two of you. Some of you actually have kids actively or used to. Um, I know my daughter isn't anywhere near done growing. What size clothes will she need next week, next month, next year? after. It seems important that we know that when we grow, what we cover ourselves with doesn't get smaller. It by necessity gets bigger and requires more room and space, not less. And it's just about everything in life is like that, not just clothes and shoes, beds, hat, bowls, plates, cups, food portions, unfortunately car seats, chairs in general, car seat positions and heights. I really hate getting into the car and knocking myself unconscious because my wife and I need a different level of seat height. Um, those of you who are tall married to somebody who's not understand my pain. 
um, jobs, knowledge, understanding, purpose. All of it changes as we change and as we grow. And it all by necessity needs to become more as we become more. And at some level, all these things become tailored to the person in order that everything can work effectively and efficiently. And so I guess the question that I'm got running around in my head is, why don't we do this with theological, religious, and spiritual understanding and application? Why do we still try to get everyone to fit into the same size baby pants of the same color and style when what we really need are different sizes, shapes, styles, and purposes, depending on the wearer. Even if you were to find someone else the exact same height and weight as Aliyah, their clothes wouldn't fit the same. They couldn't always use the same clothes because there's more to consider than just that. Body shape and proportion, for example. And I, on a side, I'm sure most of you are aware that um, a person can be tracked and identified through all sorts of sophisticated software by a number of different things. Fingerprints, retinal scans, ear shape, walking gait and stride, voice pitch and cadence, handwriting, purchasing patterns, and more. Government and marketing agencies are keenly aware of the uniqueness of each person and therefore the uniqueness of their needs and habits and desires. Even modern medicine is beginning a shift toward person-specific treatment as they take into consideration the uniqueness of each person's genetic code, tailoring treatment toward that and medications and what else may be needed for more effective treatment. And yet, still, this idea rarely applies to how we treat another person's spiritual journey. We keep trying to stuff uncomfortably handsome musicians into 12-month-old baby clothes. You know, spiritually speaking. And so I guess the question that always comes back to me is why? Why do we do this? So I want to teach you two more words. And many of you may know these words, but I'm going to do it anyway in case for those who don't. Um, when one starts learning about scholastic study and research and all of that, interpretation and hermeneutics, um, you learn right away about these two words, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means to bring the meaning out or read the meaning out. Eisegesis means to put the meaning in and to read the meaning in. So exegesis is to find out what an author really meant to say Eisegesis is what happens when our own biases and worldviews get in the way and we start inserting the meaning ourselves. Now, as seminary students, we are taught to do exegetical study to help lead us to conclusions. And every theologian believes that's what they've done. Which is interesting considering how diverse theological conclusion is. So it might lead one to conclude that maybe some theologians are doing great exegetical research and others are doing eisegetical study. But I'd like to submit something different for your consideration. I want to submit that no one has ever done exegetical study. Because unless you were standing in the room two, three, four thousand years ago, 
asking the author what he meant as he wrote it down, there's a real good chance we don't know what the author meant when he wrote it down. Not totally, not completely. Because so many things have changed. Everything that we have has been filtered through somebody else who made conclusions and somebody else who made conclusions based on the worldviews they had at the time and the people that they had surrounded them with. Language has changed and shifted, and so have their definitions. And the way that we use words have changed and shifted. And there's no way to really account for all of it without some sort of mistake and bias. And I think this is why it's important for us to remember a couple things. Those who are connected with the Spirit of God will not be known by their uniformity or sameness. They will not be known by their exceptional rule-keeping. They will not be known by their doctrinal understanding. And they will not be known by their group affiliation. In John 35, Jesus said his disciples would be known by their love. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said the inheritors of his kingdom would be the ones who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, invited in the strangers, gave clothes to the naked, cared for the sick, and visited the imprisoned. And strangely, uniformity and sameness is not required for any of those things. Only love. And while it may seem obvious, for some, the words of Jesus just aren't enough. That's weird in a Christian community, right? When the words of Jesus aren't enough. Acts chapter 15, the Jewish leaders, Jewish Christian leaders, let me make that distinction clear, are giving the Gentile Christians a hard time for not being circumcised and demanding that they all get circumcised and all the new ones come in also get circumcised. That sounds awful. I mean, that's not great. I'm glad that those of us who went through that as babies have no memory of that. I've known people who've done that as an adult, and it was awful. They wanted them to go out, grab a bunch of adult males, circumcise them at a time when healthcare wasn't great, medical care wasn't fantastic, painkillers weren't really a thing, and neither was good anesthetic. And I gotta be honest to you, if, if I had been then and that was the thing that someone came to me with and said, this is the thing that's gonna get you in or out, that might have been a hard pass for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reducing it too much, but that just seems awful. And so Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James stood against this and reminded them that the Gentiles had actually already received the Spirit of God. No circumcision required. No adherence to the laws required. And that was a big problem for the Jewish Christians. As a result, James declared that the Gentiles didn't need to follow the Jewish rules. And in verse 20 and 29, both state basically the exact same thing. Um, and they said basically this. They only needed to stay away from things polluted by idols, don't eat blood or animals that were strangled, and to stay away from bad sex stuff. And that was it. End of list. Honestly, the things not included in that should probably make us all uncomfortable and ask a lot of questions. 
as Adventists today. Even then, they recognized that not everyone needed to be the same and that not everyone was the same. They could be united without being the same. The implications of all that tend to make established religious groups really uncomfortable. And I think all of us at some point have seen the consequences of that. I'm going to call it a war. I don't know if that's the right word, but sometimes it feels like it. Fighting to decide whose set of ideals are the ones that everyone has to conform to. But if there was ever a part of the Bible that Adventists wish had never been written, I'm going to suggest that it was Romans chapter 14. And I'd like to read this for you, maybe with some commentary. Feel free to follow along if you'd like, but Romans chapter 14. And Paul really gets into it right away. As for the one who is weak in faith, and I want to I make a note here. Remember, Paul is speaking to Gentile Christians, not to Jewish Christians. And that matters for how we interpret these first couple of verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Did you catch that? He's talking to the Gentile Christians, telling them that when someone weak in faith comes in, welcome them. And then he really strongly implies who the weak in faith are. Welcome him, but not, do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Are there any Adventists in the room? Just, how do you feel about that statement? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to help him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. How do we want to interpret that? And there's a lot of people that have thoughts on what Paul meant by this. And Paul doesn't really take the time to expand on it and kind of leaves it up to you to sort of sort out what he meant. It's all you Sabbath keepers out there. And even if that wasn't what Paul was referring to, and he was just talking about other special holy days, the point still stands because he says this next. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't tell them that one of them is wrong. He just said, make sure you're convinced in your own mind. It's almost as if what is right and wrong for one is not the same as what is right and wrong for someone else. How, how do you feel about that? The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? 
For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And as in modern Christianity, we fight this war over who's right and who's wrong, I wonder what part of every and all are we failing to understand? Every knee will confess, every knee will bow, but we're deciding that that's not actually true. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And here's the loophole. We like this loophole as Adventists. Because this is the one that we can use when we don't have a good reason to tell someone not to do a thing. No, you shouldn't do that thing. Why? Because um, stumbling block. For who? Well, it could cause someone to to stumble in sin. Has it? It it might. Did, Did it cause you to sin? I, uh, and those are some of the best responses I've gotten from people when I've had to have this conversation. Let me give you an extreme example. Let's just pretend for a moment that I stood up here and ate a pork sausage in front of you right here on this pulpit. In fact, if you could hand me my bag. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That's not, he was totally going to hand me my bag. That's great. I appreciate the faith you had in me right then. That was awesome. Um, but let's just say I did. Would I have caused you to stumble? Like, what would have changed in your belief system if I had done that? What would have changed in your righteousness if I had done that? Would you have automatically become a sinner because I did a thing? But we sometimes want that to be true so that we can make someone behave in a way that makes me comfortable. And it's not about me. I know, oh, you're going to love this one too. This is a good one. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. I'm going to come back to that in just a couple minutes here. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what is regarded as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to read that again and hope that sinks in just a little bit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or insert whatever other rule you've heard thrown around, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever thus serves in righteousness, peace, and joy is acceptable to God. Is that that the rule that we go with? And when I say we, I want to be clear that I'm not, like, pointing fingers at people in the room here. 
we exist in a reality right now where there is so much tension, not just in the Adventist denomination, but in Christianity in general. If you have even read the news once in the last five, six years, it's crazy out there. The things that Christianity are declaring need to be true that have nothing to do with the spirit and love of God. I think for years we grew up thinking that there was going to be some great war between Adventists and everybody else, but really what it is is Christians fighting themselves. And we did it to ourselves. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So I, I want to hit these two again because it said it twice now. There are two concepts in, in Jewish cultural rules that in English always get translated as clean and unclean, but they're actually two different ones. It was actually what was common and uncommon and clean and unclean. Common and uncommon had to do with more general things. Were you a Jew in the same room at the same table as a Gentile? That could make you uncommon, and there were specific rules on how to deal with that. But if you were to eat the pork or the blood that would make you unclean, or if you had a disease, it made you unclean, and you had to have it taken care of, otherwise it was sin. And the problem is, is that Paul uses both of those in this chapter. So we can't look at this and say Paul was talking about one but not the other, because the first example that I read was common and uncommon. The word there is koine. Um, interestingly, that's the type of Greek that was used in the Bible, koine Greek, the common Greek. So the first example was, don't let anyone get over you on everything is common. Paul said everything is common. But here, he uses the word katharos, or in this case, agkatharos, to mean not clean. That is the big one. That's the one that Jews got their tiny baby pants in a knot over. I'm glad you recalled that. That was good. Because that was a big deal. And Paul's saying... It's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing, according to Paul. What are the implications for us as Adventist Christians today when we consider those statements? There's lots of commentary on it, lots of differing thought. Take a look, decide what is right. But I think that's Paul's point. Decide what's right and let it be. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have between yourself is, keep between yourself and God. I can't read anymore. Let me try that again. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That's a big deal right there. The faith that you have, keep between you and God. It's not for you or me or anyone to put that onto somebody else. Because they're going to have a faith too that they're going to keep between them and God. I mean, that sentence alone implies a complete and utterly different set of beliefs among the common believers. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm going to say it again. Did Paul just say that sin is relative? 
What is sin for one is not sin for another. When we, when we try to get someone to be the way we want them to be, are we helping them? Are we just using control to make ourselves comfortable? Is stumbling block even a consideration anymore? Maybe it is. I'll let you decide that. But here's where I get to the point, and, and I want to go to John chapter 3, if that's all right. I'm going to read a few verses here, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Side note, this is the very beginning of the book of John. And they're already saying, yeah, we know who you are. This is before he'd even had a lot of problems with them. It says a lot about everything that happens next, and you should read the entire book in that context. Moving on. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, probably tongue-in-cheek, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He said cleverly with a chuckle. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this last verse is so key. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So let me break this down for a second. If the leading of the Spirit, which is in theory what we all have guiding us, it should be, right? Is, an is as unpredictable as the wind to such an extent that you can never know where it's coming from and never know where it's going. How can we decide what everyone needs to look like? One, it's not up to us. Two, it's not predictable. How can we codify such a thing that Jesus himself said is unpredictable and cannot be known except by the Spirit and the person who's being led and probably not even always by the person being led? How can we keep putting people in small, codified, uniformed boxes so that we all look exactly the same? Why do we need people and everyone to look just like us? Why would we rather stand in the way of the Spirit's leading in a person's journey the true stumbling block, I would like to suggest. Just so that I won't feel uncomfortable about how different their life is than mine. Why do we need to tell others how wrong they are simply so I can imply how right I am? here to support people wherever God has placed them in their 
journey. They're not here to do whatever we tell them and be whatever we want them to be. And this is the problem with the law. And I think this was part of Paul's point because the law is reductive. It makes us smaller. That's one of the reasons to go back to Paul's example that he talks about the weaker person eats only vegetables. The restriction to the lowest common denominator, it diminishes love. There's no room for love within that type of stricture. You're all growing, as is everyone who is not also in this room, as is everyone not of our faith. And whether we believe God knows what he is doing in the life of someone who believes very different than you or I, well, we either believe that he does or we believe in an impotent God and a useless God. Does anyone here believe in a useless, impotent God? If we as children of God want to ever be relevant in the world around us, we gotta stop trying to make carbon copies of each other. We gotta stop trying to stuff people into containers that were not designed for them. In Ephesians 3, and this will be the last little bit here, I promise starting in verse 17. Paul says this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If that is the scope of God's love, and we are to be filled with the measure of God, full measure of God, then perhaps it's time we stop reducing people to this. Maybe we need to start upsizing our own love in the direction of an endless God. Pray with me. Lord, help us to be bigger. We are. Give us the love that expands in the directions of your love and encompasses all that your love encompasses. Lift up the people who've been hurt by the smallness of others who have done damage in your name. Reveal your love to them as you reveal it to us. Give us the strength to walk in that, no matter who likes it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.